Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. You hear things like, if God is in it, he will supply these things. He'll help you meet your fundraising goals and all those. But what happens when you don't meet those goals for years, for decades? In that train of thought, you begin to go, well, maybe I'm not called to this. I am uh, happy to announce to our podcast listeners that we're going to start having you guys on the show more often to help introduce our guests. That's Do they the know who we are? Um, we're here with Morgan Lee. Hi. And Caitlin Beatty. Hello. The co-host. <laughs> the co-host. The co-host of um, Quick to Listen, our sister podcast. Woohoo! Um, it's uh, it's very good. If you aren't listening already, you should. What are you guys going to be talking about this week? I think every week we'll just say, hey, what are you going to be talking about this yeah. week? And if you don't know yet, then you can be like, we don't know yet. Well, obviously, with the shooting at the gay club in Orlando this past weekend, we felt like we, we couldn't not respond. You know, all of our we know all of our readers and listeners are thinking about this, mm-hmm. are grieved by it. So we want to talk specifically about how we mourn as a community, especially using social media and what social media makes possible and makes more difficult as we think about national tragedies. As you know, our show is about controversies. And so to some extent, the shootings in Orlando aren't controversial to the extent that they're unequivocally wrong and evil. On the other hand, what's become increasingly controversial that we want to talk about is how people are responding to these tragedies and the ways in which you publicly mourn or don't mourn or use this as an opportunity to talk about other issues that you are also equally passionate about. And so this is something that we plan to just unpack for our listeners and hopefully move the conversation forward. Is it confirmed yet you're having our own Andy Crouch on the show? Yeah, yeah. Andy is an executive editor here and he lives with his family outside of Philadelphia, but he's in the office every other week. So we're grateful that he just happens to be in this particular week and he will join us in the sound booth tomorrow morning. Sweet. So as you were talking, I was rolling up my sleeves. That means it's time to get to work and talk about is this a good uh, transition? I mean, Morgan and I would roll up our sleeves, but we're wearing tops that have no sleeves. I should try that. That way, it would be <laughs> our muscle sleeves are tees. already rolled up. I should wear. I'll be, I'll be wearing muscle tee next week. But for this, <laughs> thanks week, for thanks for the warning. <laughs> this the week, image. <laughs> this week, we're. Uh, I'm rolling up my sleeves so that I can talk about my show, uh, the calling to this week. We had Leroy Barber on. I got to interview him just the other week at the Justice Conference. Do you guys know who Leroy Barber is? So I recognized his name as an InterVarsity Press author. Mm. Um, he wrote a book on missions, I believe, three or four years ago. And then he wrote a couple pieces for the This Is Our City Project a few years ago. But oh, nice. I just met him in person the same time that you did. So one thing that's cool is they're doing a thing called Hope Mob. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about Hope, how Hope Mob was kind of a natural extension of the person, Leroy Barber. Like. Mm. They're relaunching it, but in some ways, like Leroy Barber, his whole thing is like he starts things. 
he envisions and starts things. And so, so this is like a way for him to do that on a mass scale, like for a lot of different things. Uh, listeners of this podcast would be interested to know that their first project, I believe, is with Pastor Jay, Jonathan Brooks. He was our first official guest on Quick to Listen. And he was my, what, second, I think, guest mm-hmm. on The Calling. So it's a good it's a good opportunity for you to go back and listen to the Jonathan Brooks if you haven't because it's um, fascinating. It will probably inspire you to give some money to Hope Mob. It's a good cause, I think. Yeah. So for the listeners who haven't heard of it, what exactly is Hope Mob's um, mission? Essentially, it's a crowdfunding platform specifically designed to support people who are working in under-resourced communities who ideally are actually part of those communities and or our leaders of color. Leroy is really trying to figure out a way to get a number of people to contribute and crowdsourcing is one of the ways that you can just kind of increase the volume of small donors for things and mm-hmm. then put money in the hands of people who are already doing work and in relationship with people. It's kind of a cool idea because you give like $10 or however much you want uh, uh, starting at $10 a month and then they kind of like put your money into people's hands who need it and to do kind of amazing, interesting things. And Hope is cool because one of the things that they're doing is they actually will send a team to your site and they'll do marketing for your cause. And you're not being Mm -hmm. asked to kind of create your own from scratch. So before we get to that podcast, I want to take a moment to discuss with our listeners the opportunity they have before them, which is to support and subscribe to Christianity Today magazine, which Caitlin is largely responsible for. Yeah, I think it would be cool if you subscribed. <laughs> and but she means it, too. Yeah. Christianity Today offers redemptive and honest coverage of the people, events, and ideas shaping the church and culture. As a subscriber, you get 10 award-winning print issues, the tablet and PDF editions of each issue, full web access to ChristianityToday.com, online archives dating back to 1956, and we've got a special deal for you. One year for $10. That's like a dollar an issue. Just think, you, you give up... The, like, Chipotle burrito one week. Mm-hmm. But seriously, it's a great deal. Yeah. And I think your listeners will find a lot to appreciate and benefit from in the print magazine. Agree. So, anyway, here it is. Leroy Barber. He is a pastor, by the way, at Imago Day Community Eastside in Portland. He's also a college pastor at Kilns College. Cool. Here he is. He's full of wisdom. I mean, I feel like I would feel out of place in Portland. It fits the name Portland Weird is very accurate. Yeah. You can see uh, some pretty, pretty fascinating, crazy things on any given day. Uh Like you can walk into a coffee shop and it's just something bizarre. Right. Right. So, yeah. What are some bizarre things that you've had? Oh, my gosh. I mean, for me, so I'm on a bus stop one time waiting for a bus and, uh, a woman comes walking by on stilts and a long, like, long dress and a tail, big long tail, uh-huh. and on her cell phone as if, like. <laughs> and she's like, why is everyone staring at Exactly. Yeah. Right? As if, like, this is normal. <laughs> she's just on her cell phone. And I'm like, wow, 
that's that's crazy yeah. you know so things like that happen yeah people yeah. show up in coffee shops in full wedding gowns and just they're not right they're just there they're sitting in the shop yeah you know and i've like, always wanted wow. to do that when it was my wedding i was like, <laughs> right, just right. Go somewhere and right. Out. yeah now that, and that could be either sex showing up at a wedding gown. right so yeah just so yeah. you know like, yeah. like yeah. right so so um your name is leroy barber mm-hmm. you just started a thing called hope mob which we'll probably talk about and then uh you do you do a lot i was like looking at your twitter profile and it's like a list of five things you're a pastor mm-hmm so, uh, wh- where are you a pastor at? Uh, right now, I am at Imago Day Eastside, helping pastor there. Uh, not the lead, but on a team. And it's been, been nice. It's a, uh, another campus of Imago Day that they started on Eastside. And they, the, the goal there is to have diversity within the, within the church body. Right. Um, How is it right now? Is it like a goal you're you, in the future? No, no, it's almost a year. Uh, we've been meeting where we are almost a year. It'll be a year uh, this summer. It's been going pretty well so Diversity far. Diversity-wise, are you, where are you? I would probably say we're still, I mean, for Portland, we're probably, I don't know, somewhere about 65, 35, 65 okay. white, 35 people of color, which is really good for Portland. Right. We're trying to get those numbers up, but that's actually pretty good. Yeah. Uh, we always start with one question, a particular question, which is how would you define your calling? Wow. That's a, my calling. So I'm, I'm very entrepreneurial. I'm a starter. I'm driven by my faith. Uh, and I think a combination of those things kind of make up who I am and who I believe God has made me to be in areas he wants me to work in. So. I've been a part of three different church starts, mm-hmm. uh, and I uh, started a coffee shop, started a school, started a environmental uh, organization. I've started some businesses when I was younger. Yeah. Some people kind of Christ- Christianese language would say it's kind of this this apostolic kind of gift, you know, right. um, would be kind of some Christian language, and I like to say entrepreneurial. Or creative. You don't you like know. apostolic? I, yeah, I don't know. It's like too much. Yeah, yeah, it sounds way too much for who I am. Like, I don't know, that, that, that sounds above my head. I don't know. Yeah, so I'm, 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 my calling is in those spaces and I'm also very committed to, um, to scripture. I'm very committed to the proclamation of the scriptures and what I call committed to the gospel. But, when I say that, I'm meaning a proclamation of, of kind of who God is and what Jesus means in my life with an idea of justice. Um, no separation. That, sort of a working out of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And a tension between those two. What does it mean for this to work out practically in the lives of people? Every what, day? What's the tension? Uh, I'm older, so I grew up in the age of this term social gospel. Um, which kind of meant like not the real gospel, this kind of once removed kind of right. thing. I remember learning about it in seminary. Yeah, exactly. You're like, it's that over there. Exactly. We don't want that. Right, yeah. right. And so I really, I really, when I say gospel, I always explain I'm not talking about just a proclamation for people to get, you know, saved, converted. I'm talking about a vibrant connection with Jesus that works out 
around the issues of, of justice and for poor people and for uh, marginalized people around the world, making sure that those are together. Is that so? Is there something that unites the entrepreneurial thing? Is that maybe what it is? Or I don't know. When we talk about calling, yeah. I, mean, I, I, was, I was built this way. And it took me a long time to get to. It's not like you were being asked to do something that you don't want to do. You know, always a risk taker. Always. I can't remember not leading. Always out front. Those kinds of things. And that's not a statement of bragging. That's just a statement of owning how I think I was made, how I was put together. The church where you're a pastor, is that a church you helped to start? No, it was kind of in the works when I came and they just asked me to kind of join in the team as it launched. Um, So yeah, so there from the beginning, but it was already kind of in the works when I got there, but I have started a church from scratch. That's interesting to me because you, you had, like you said, you started three churches, right? Mm -hmm. So you started three churches and now you're starting, it seems like you're focused on like businesses and organizations. Is there a reason you stopped planning churches? I starting churches, planning churches, uh, is one of the hardest things I've done. Yeah, I can't imagine it. Because like, I get the entrepreneurial mindset, but part of it is mm-hmm. is having a business model. That's that's something that's interesting right, to me. Right. And like, how is this going to work? And then it's, it starts to feel very gross very quickly right, when you're right, dealing with churches. Right. right. And people have these expectations of church that they don't have in other places that that still baffled me, actually. I still, I can talk to a person outside of a church setting, say that person's a you know, a business-minded person or a lawyer or one of those things, and they are super confident, like, know what they're doing. Um, you can count on them. But when they come into church, they have a different mindset of what the pastor and how that person should lead. And asking that person to combine a lot of things that most you can't combine like you want a you want a starter you want a creative you want a person who's there every sunday you want a person who understands the business side you want a person who can counsel people you want a person who like who who baptizes your kid like you want all of that yeah, in this one person yeah all the expectations of right? one path yeah, yeah, yeah right totally. and but in their business world they would never ask that of one person there would be a team and so it's kind of interesting how, how that works out. So do you prefer the team approach then for church pastors? I do. Yeah. I do. I'm learning actually a lot about that approach right now that I really, really like. That's really interesting because um, growing up, I was in a church where it was very much like the pastor in charge. Mm-hmm, the pastor's mm-hmm, in charge mm-hmm. and then there's deacons who just like do what he says or sometimes get mad about stuff mm-hmm, and say mm-hmm. stuff. But in general, it's like follow the leadership of this one visionary in the middle right. and also expect all of those things out of him at the same time. And then I uh, later on was in churches where we had like a plurality of elders mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was able to see very clearly, especially after spending like eight years in a church, mm-hmm. uh, this guy is in, is in charge of strategy. This guy is in charge of like discipleship right right they all had their very clear gifts and you learn to expect certain things out of certain guys and not expect certain things at all out of other guys and it became like okay at least right, to a right. degree a lot of people would come in and struggle with it for a while and then realize oh okay he's not that guy and he can't be because he's got like a life and family and 
needs to be able to preach and all sorts of other things. So, so yeah, I think, I think, I think overall we just get weird about our pastors. Yeah. For one reason or another. So then after you started three churches, is that, were that, was that like in a row? Like you did three? You no, know, they like, were spread out. So Philadelphia, okay. between Philadelphia, Atlanta, and now Portland. So it's over those, that, a long period of time. And so. then how long has it been since, since you joined this church? What have you launched since then? Going to Portland, we have launched something called Voices, which is a support for leaders of color, um, where we gather leaders of color, we do spiritual formation, um, we do uh, what we call conversations and gatherings uh, that bring together leaders to support them in their work. Um, and then, uh, obviously, Hope Mob is just... just uh, we're actually rebranding Hope, Hope Mob. We're restarting something that was there. Right. So I'm talking um, to you the day after a launch. I guess it's a relaunch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Hope Mob was basically like this. How would you describe it? Because I don't want to say what yeah, it is in yeah, the yeah. wrong way. It's a, it's a crowdsourcing platform, right? Sort of in the vein of Kickstarter. Right, in yeah. the vein of a Kickstarter, yeah. but focused on supporting leaders of color in marginalized communities, right? And so uh, gathering those leaders, helping them tell their stories and tell them well, uh, and then connecting that with a crowdsource to support that leader and to and bring resource and funding to right. the, to those projects. What's really interesting about this thing is that it is it's almost like the logical extension of what you've been doing, which is you've been starting all these things and now you're helping you're starting a thing that helps people start things, which is nice. Do you have a feeling that like this is bigger than anything else you've done or I have a sense. So I am, my wife and I are, oof, I don't know, 27, 28 years in nonprofit work, um, for one way or another over most of our married life. And I feel like this, it is our way as people who've been in it for a long time of looking back and going, man, it would be great when we started. For somebody to kind of look at us and go, Hey, we're going to, we're going to help and we're going to walk with you. We're going to offer these, these, these pieces for you as a person of color in the midst of a, a space that's dominated by white culture and white thought. And I need to maneuver that space. Yeah. We had to do it through trial and error, but young people now don't have to do that. They can have a dream, want to create something, have a call in their lives, want to reach their neighborhoods. And we can help. And that, that's pretty exciting. This is kind of, this is kind of bigger than us. Can you talk about that trial and error? I'm actually really interested in what it is like to be a person of color trying to help your community and, and bumping up against uh, misunderstandings or like things that get in the way that often come from outside of the community. So can you talk about sort of the personal experiences you've had there? Yeah. So I think. I think one of the biggest, one of the larger things that arose was in this idea of like how we raise personal support, you know, and we got started and we were given advice to send out letters and to talk to our family and friends and, uh, and our church, those things. And we did that and do that. But man, after years and years of doing that and seeing very little come in in that way, looking at it all of a sudden and going, man, is this, is there something wrong with us? Like denying your call 
whether this is really God, because you hear things like, if God is in it, he will supply, you know, these things. He'll help you meet your fundraising goals and all those. Well, what happens when he doesn't, when you don't meet those goals for years, right? For decades, right? In that train of thought, you begin to go, well, maybe I'm not called to this. And going through that alone, going through that not understanding totally the big picture of how things have, have been working, you get to a, a place where you just kind of go, well, maybe I should just just give this up and not do this any longer. Those are, those are painful moments for people of color when they get to those spaces. Or being in a place where someone would give us funding to do a project, but not for our family. And so you have so many people out here who are doing these projects, who are doing these things and struggling for their families to eat literally. Right. And we re- we remember Donna and I remember being in that place 20 years ago. And it's not easy and people are still people of color, leaders of color are still living that reality right now. So really wanting to 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 help however we can. This episode is brought to you by the Truce podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So we have had Pastor Jay, who is kind of like in your first big launch video. We've had him on the podcast. And one, one thing that struck me when I was talking to him, I think on the podcast, was that he works so many jobs. He does so much. And all of it's like valuable. All of it is contributing. But like the stuff he really is invested in, he does it basically as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And I know so many people, I don't know if this is like a, I don't know if this is a racial divide, but it seems like it from anecdotally from my end. I know so many people who are working for organizations mm-hmm. that are white and that um, serve these communities, serve communities like this or underserved communities in general. And they do it as their job. Right. It's their, and it's a very fulfilling job. It's very good work. They do good things, but it's supported. And it just, it, it does make me go like, why, why is it that some people are supported as their full-time job in this work? And some people just, it's like, make it, it's your passion. So do it for fun. Right, yeah. right, right. And man, there's so many levels to this, right? So there's that personal support raising level that if you come from a, a background where you don't have a family or friends or a church that can support you at a level that, that kind of a level, um, that becomes frustrating. Or like you said, you're working another job and you're doing this, this thing, uh, because it's your call and it's what you love, right? And so you, you're in effect doing two or three jobs. Uh, and you're getting worn out. So you got that in there, but then you have this idea 
And they, there are many people of color um, who go without to step into call and know that that's going to be a suffer. Like they're going to be on public transportation sometimes or have a really old car and their house isn't going to be kind of, you know, at this kind of wonderful, beautiful kind of level, you know, of of living. It's 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 pretty, you know, um, simple. And those people are heroes in our in our society. And those are our people, our teachers, where we see kind of this idea of suffering for the other lived out, yeah. right? Yeah. So you have those folks. Yep. But then to look at the other side of that, where I've been in places where um, there's a white leader, right, who decides that he or she is going to do the same thing. They're going to volunteer and lead a work into a community of color. And they might have a working spouse, right? A, uh, who, and this is a, you know, true story. Like their spouse is a lawyer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And or a business owner and the other spouse steps out to lead this urban work and they get praise for their sacrifice lauded over for their sacrifice what a great thing you're doing how wonderful that is for you to do this for free and to watch that happen to watch how this white leader who has a uh, spouse who owns a business or is a lawyer making a good income decide to not work versus this person who's from the neighborhood who decides to step into this whose family won't eat because their spouse isn't a lawyer or right. a doctor. They, their spouse, you know, works on a teacher's salary or like the accolades aren't the same. Now you say we're not in this for the accolades, but there's a difference there. And, and that, that's tragic to me. There's a lot of stuff like money and accolades that you don't, you don't go into it for that. But the flip side of that is like when you don't get it, it makes it hard like just the bottom line, right? Like you just don't do it anymore after a while because there is no positive feedback loop. It makes you quest. Like you mentioned earlier, you start to just doubt, are you doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. Because uh, no one's telling you you are in any concrete way. Right. So if your calling is entrepreneurship, starting things, when did you become aware of that? calling i was probably in this for about 10 or 15 years before i accepted that role to say you know what this is probably who i am that if i start something i'm not the person who's going to maintain it right yeah right and or see it grow to its greatest potential my my work is to get it going to like be this person that's going to take the risk that's going to lose money on it. That's going to get it to a place where it's in people's minds, you know, and then have somebody who can stabilize it, maintain it, help it grow. And so when I've done that well, the things that I leave well and leave to somebody who can help it grow, it's amazing. And so living for that, leaving something that you start and say, ah, I can't wait for five years in because this person is going to take it somewhere that I could never do. Can you talk about a time where you tried to you tried to see it through and and struggled? Oh, my gosh. There are many of those stories. Uh-huh. Uh, I uh, I started a um, a company uh, when I lived in Philly. It was part of our ministry. It was obviously for us to have income, but I was hiring guys to clean who couldn't find work otherwise. Either, you know, they had been in trouble with the law or whatever, right? And so I would hire folks in. 
And so I got this started by working myself and then training guys to, to go in and clean or do maintenance or these kinds of things, light construction. And so I got this started. But I didn't know, like, I didn't have this awareness, like, that I'm just here to start it. So I'm trying to maintain this business. And I'm not a, I'm not a detail-oriented person trying to maintain a business, right? Uh, hiring people, getting paychecks done. And Donna is, is, is incredible at, at helping with that stuff. But, like, I'm overwhelming, kind of pushing the vision piece. And so trying me, like, the businesses like that I've done over and over that didn't go anywhere because I was trying to be the maintainer. So right. great startup, wonderful idea. It's going. But as I try to keep it maintained, it just crashes and burns. Um, as opposed to when I step out, um, places like the school um, that we started in Atlanta that now, you know, is thriving, you know, the coffee shop that we started. That, Does it make you feel bad? Like you leave a thing and it gets better? You know, if, before I understood, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But now, like to watch it and to watch new ideas keep adding on to that original thing, it's it's wonderful to watch. I mean, there's a there's some work in South Atlanta where we used to live that's thriving right now, doing so well. I could never have taken it there, no matter how hard I tried. Like that's, I'm not that person. Hope Mob is so interesting now in light of this conversation because it's like a way for you to do that all the time to just like go in, start it and leave exactly and let it happen. Yeah. Were you, when you had this realization, were you, you were a Christian at the time. Mm -hmm. How long were you a Christian before you realized that? Oh, well, I grew up in the church. Okay. So so you've kind of, it it was kind of a figuring out your call and what mm -hmm. that really meant. You know, growing up in church, you're supposed to be in, you know, it's like, my mom's in church. She made me go to Bible study and Sunday school and these kind of things. Yeah. And it wasn't until like my call became mine and you know, you start to you start to pray about that specifically. What is, what does that mean? Who am I God? You know, what age were you when you started thinking about that? Uh, probably mid to late twenties. Okay. Yeah. I wish I would have had that at 18, yes. 19, <laughs> but uh, you know, so, but Probably mid to late twenties is where it really started to start to take shape. And by, by mid thirties, it was, it was there. Crystallized. Like, yeah, yeah. 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 Begin to figure out who I was. So people who grow up in the church often have a moment where they're like, wait a minute. Do I really think this? What did you have that moment? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I had a wonderful discipleship experience at church, right? The person who um, actually discipled my wife and I just, I mean, he changed our lives and, in those, mo- like, you don't know what those moments mean until like 10 or 15 years later. And you go, Oh my gosh, this person built this thing in me mm-hmm. 15 years ago. That's just coming out. Like, just amazing. And, uh, and I think that's, that's the beauty of like what that process really means. And I think it's probably who I am now. Like, like I can build something, I can start something, I can be a part of something. It may not blossom, you know, for 10 years, but that's, that's all right. And it may not even know it itself, like being a pastor or working uh, with young adults that I did for a long time with Mission Year and being with people when they were 18 and 19 and 20, you know, just out of college. And they didn't know very much. They were knuckleheads, most of them, even if they weren't aware that they, you know. Right. But now here we are, you know, here we are 
17, 18 years, you know, in and those people are blossoming based on some, some decision they made 15 years ago to do this year of service. Yeah. Right. And it's changed the trajectory in our life forever. Is right? there something specific you're thinking about that was that thing that meant something to you? Yeah. So I said, I can't remember when I wasn't a leader. But I can remember when I didn't know. I, kind of looking back, you can see these things. So, so the person that discipled me, we would come into a Bible study on Friday nights, and this person would always ask me what I thought. Hey, Leroy, what do you think about that? Were they a pastor? Yeah, uh, not at the time. Yeah. Just a Bible teacher and a trustee at our church, right? And would always say, Hey, Leroy, what do you think? Give me your insight into this scripture. Like, what do you, like, how does this fit into the kingdom? How does this fit into the bigger picture of the world, right? Every week going through this, going through this, not knowing what that was doing inside of me, right? It was him saying, you're valuable, man. You got something to say. You got something to give. And he would, he would always be like, oh my gosh, that's amazing what you just said and did. Like, and it was, it was like, whoa, like, really? So, so specifically that person built in me this creative process, this thought process, this way to look at the world and the kingdom that was pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of church did you grow up in? I grew up in a Baptist church, National Baptist Church in, uh, in Southwest Philadelphia. Uh, and this class happened in the basement of that church about nine or 10 of us, um, as teenagers and, and young and, into our, our early college years. So, and what are you, what kind of a church are you in now? It's a non-denominational. The church that I've planted, a couple churches I've been part, like part of planting, were all kind of kind of non-denominational related, and which I think goes to my kind of spirit of like inclusion uh-huh. and wanting it not to be locked in a certain group of people, a certain person, a certain right. way. But There's open. like an inherent limitation in, in choosing a denomination. Yeah, there is, I think, sometimes. Yeah. So, What has been your biggest struggle since you started working out this calling? I mean, I love my gift and I know what it is now. I know who I am, you know, and obviously I'm nobody's, we're always working on ourselves. But there is a being a starter and a risk taker means you're always starting and always taking risks, right? Mm-hmm. So there's always the pressure of that. How do I get this next thing done? I right? was going to say when you started telling me, you started to, talking about your calling and immediately like I got stressed out mm-hmm, mm-hmm, thinking mm-hmm, about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. it's crazy. It's like you always start something. So it's even for me, like I, I'm an author now, right? And I'm on my, I just finished my fourth book. What right? book is that? Uh, the one coming out is called Embrace. Embrace. Kind of this idea of reaching across to the other in your life. Well, in the middle of writing a book, my wife can tell you, I am like, oh my gosh, I hate this. Why did I do this? <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm pushing through it and my editor's sending stuff and I'm like, ah, oh, I can't wait to get done this. I'm not doing this ever again. And then, the minute I'm finished, my editor will tell you, I sent her the proposal for a new, new idea. Wow. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's, she's like, Hey, let's get through this first. And I'm like, but I got this whole new one already thought yeah. out. It's you interesting because books are like the one thing you have to finish. <laughs> yes. You have to yes. see it through. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And thank, but in that process, I, again, like, I have an idea, I put it on paper, I work it through, and I give it to somebody who can then help me like manage that to get it to 
a workable book. That's your editor. That's your copy editor, right? That's your typesetter. All these people are refining that idea. That's a team process, right? That's not just about the author. And so, so you major on that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. To, to get, what does your wife do when you're complaining about writing the book? Uh, she, 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 she's learned to not listen to my whining. So <laughs> she's, blows it she's off. like, just, just do it. Just, just finish do it. it. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to the local church, I'm interested in what you think churches can be doing uh, within the context of their community, I guess, to help, to help people who are trying to start things and their community and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, so uh, I'm a believer in community development. And so part of Christian Community Development Association, uh, CCDA, and this idea that churches, uh, knowing their communities, being a part of their communities, uh, loving the folks, uh, this kind of theology of place, that where where we are is important. The local school is important. Like the housing uh, in that area is important. Who's marginalized in this neighborhood, and how do how how are they a part of of everything? The businesses, the 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 politics, all of that works together for community development, and the church should be in the center of that. Right, um, not the lone voice, but a part of that commitment to a community. You brought up politics. So how, how does the church interact with politics in that? So politics play out in a local community and your, your people, your folks that are marginalized. Like there's somebody making a decision downtown for people who generally don't have a voice. So the church has to step in and be that voice, right? Uh, because it is an institution that can speak, uh, and putting ourselves in that place to speak for the marginalized, right? Not about candidates and elections. Well, I think those are important and everybody should be involved. But the voice for the marginalized in the public square is really important for churches. If you could get in a time machine and go back in time and say, hey, Leroy Barber, uh, I want to tell you something. What would you say? Oh, my gosh. That's really easy. Uh (laughs) I was a horrible student. I mean... (laughs) Horrible, 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 yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, if I could go back to 1978 when I started high school and make myself like understand what being a good student could do and get you to the place you wanted to be in a little bit like easier path, mm-hmm. then I would do, I would, I would speak to that person. I was also a bad, really bad student, but I kind of feel like. I feel like there were there was a moment where that mattered, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it could have gone badly. Uh-huh. Like I was taking a huge unnecessary risk uh-huh, uh-huh. by just coasting, right? <laughs> right. Um, and yet I feel like I kind of made it. Uh-huh. I, I made it through. I got uh-huh, into a college uh-huh. and I graduated. Right. What was it about that that actually you feel affecting your life right now? I think I, I wouldn't change the path, but I I've made the path harder for myself by not applying myself the discipline of learning earlier. I think you're more self-aware than I am. uh, You know, like, it's a discipline that comes from learning, from hunkering down and learning, right? Reading, writing, you know, uh, understanding what concepts the teacher's trying to get across to you and how all those things work together. I didn't get that until later. And if I would have got that in high school, it would the path would have been easier. I would have bumped my head against the wall so much time for lack of discipline. What was your relationship with your parents and school? How did that play out? 
Well, you know, both of my parents worked blue collar jobs. My dad drove a bus and worked construction and my parents divorced early. So, um, so most of my teenage years was just my mom who worked from early on, probably about nine or 10 who worked in a hospital. Uh, and she did that all day, every day. So she tried to keep up with school, but it was like, the priority was feeding her kids. Right. You know? And so. And then she took you to church every Sunday. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, church, she majored on. Yeah. If there was one thing she majored on, that was it. That was right. It, yeah. Um, she supported school where she could, but making us understand who, who Jesus was in her life was really was the major piece. You've been listening to The Calling. Leroy Barber is co founder of The Voices Project, director of Hope Mob, which you can find on Twitter as at Hope, and the college pastor at Kilns College. He's also a pastor at Imago Day Community Eastside. You can follow him on Twitter at Leroy Barber. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Cray Allred. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.